We ended our last message from Genesis chapter 45. We find at this time that Jacob has made the decision to leave the land of Canaan to go down into Egypt to see his son Joseph before he died. Now Jacob, as all of us, did not know how much longer he had to live. We're going to find out that Jacob's going to live longer than he perhaps anticipated. But what made that decision, or helped Jacob make that decision, was the fact that his sons had come back from the land of Egypt, back to Canaan, brought back far more than he anticipated. But they brought news. You know, he was anticipating some food to help him through the famine. But the first thing they brought him was news. It was the kind of news that would just kind of knock you over. The news was his son Joseph was alive. And on top of that, he was the governor in the land of Egypt. Both sides of that statement were really just truly unbelievable. For about 22 years, Jacob believed in his heart that his son Joseph was dead. And even though Joseph wasn't dead, as far as Jacob's emotions, his feelings, his pain, his sorrow, it was all just as real as if Joseph had actually been dead. And now the news comes that Joseph is alive. It's like Joseph had been resurrected. It was so, the news was so great that it caused Jacob's heart to faint. But then he saw the wagons. He saw the things Joseph sent back with his brothers to get his father and all their families and bring them down to Egypt. And then it says he heard all the words of Joseph. Joseph, of course, being a type of our Lord Jesus Christ, uh, we need to hear all the words of Jesus, don't we? We need to read the scriptures on a regular basis. The words of Jesus are meaningful. The words of Jesus are things that we can hold on to. The words of Jesus are words of truth, and their truth shall make us free. And so we're comforted, we're encouraged, and we're strengthened by the words of Jesus. Jacob was strengthened, wasn't he, by the words of Joseph. So then it says his heart revived. He went from a fainting stage into being revived. And so we start off then in chapter 46. And notice in the first five verses, this will be very important. Israel took his journey with all that he had and came to Beersheba and offered sacrifice to the God of his father Isaac. The word Israel has reference to Jacob. Israel was the name that God gave Jacob. You will find in a little bit where God speaks to Jacob and he doesn't refer to him as Israel. He refers to him as Jacob. And we'll get to that in just a moment. But this is God's appointed name that he gave unto Jacob. The name Jacob was given to him, of course, by Isaac and Rebekah. But God gave him the name of Israel. And later on, when the nation of Israel is fully formed, that will be the name they will go by, the nation of Israel. So it says that Israel took his journey with all that he had. And I like the way this starts out, with all that he had. Now, Pharaoh in the previous chapter had told them to regard not your stuff. There will be plenty for you down here in Egypt. All the provisions you stand in need of will be provided. Now, I want you to notice in that statement that Pharaoh made, and a little bit later on, as we'll see tonight, Lord willing, that the heart of Pharaoh was very favorable toward Joseph and his family. Now, Proverbs 21.1 says that the heart of the king is in the hand of the Lord. 
He turns whithersoever he desireth as the rivers of water. That's a very important verse for us today. It just simply means the heart of those who are in places of authority and power are in God's hand. God can melt those hearts. God can tender those hearts. God can change those hearts. Even though they may be wicked and evil hearts, God can place such an influence in their hearts that they can make decisions that be beneficial and profitable for the Lord's people. Now, Pharaoh knew how valuable Joseph had been. He recognized the wisdom of Joseph. He recognized the abilities and the gifts and talents that God had given unto Joseph. He put him second in command. He was the governor of all he had. He saw how wisely he managed those seven years of plenty. And now we're in the seven years of famine. About two years of the seven years of famine have come to pass. So we're kind of getting into year number three. These are things Pharaoh didn't have to do, but he did. Pharaoh became a friend of Joseph. He was a friend of Jacob, as we will see later on. So Jacob took off on his journey with all that he had, all of his family, all of his goods, all his possessions. This tells me that Jacob recognized he wasn't just going down to Egypt for a visit. He was going down to Egypt to live for a while. He didn't know how long. But he was going to change locations. He was going to change where he lived. He was going to go from Canaan down to Egypt. So he left to go down there with all that he had. Now, I look over here in the 11th chapter of the book of Hebrews. In verses 14 through 16, you'll read where those who walk by faith. At this point, the writers told us about Enoch. He's told us about Noah. He's uh, told us about Abraham and Sarah. And then he pauses. He says, these all died in faith, having not received the promises. There were promises God made that only an eye of faith could see and believe in. But these patriarchs, these different ones, died before they experienced the fullness of God's promises. But they all died in faith, every one of them. Having not received the promises, but having seen them, or far off by the eye of faith, it says that they were persuaded of them and embraced them and confessed that they were pilgrim and strangers in this world. Now, just remember that, okay? That's what they confessed. And it says, and they that say such things, that tells me that not everyone says things like that. See, the Lord's children in the Lord's church has a vocabulary <laughs> that is special to them. And one of the things that's special to the Lord's people, when they've seen themselves as poor, unworthy, undone sinners in this world, and who are saved by the grace of God entirely and completely, they see themselves as a pilgrim and a stranger. A pilgrim is on a journey, a stranger is away from home. When you can reach the point in your experience that you really believe this world doesn't belong to you anymore, and you don't belong in this world anymore. You know, the Apostle Paul said, that he was crucified with Christ, but he goes on to say that he was crucified into the world and the world was crucified unto him. The world meant nothing to the Apostle Paul after his experience on that Damascus road. So then it says, they that say such things, you know, as they confess their pilgrims and strangers, it says that if they had been mindful of that country from which they had come out of, they might have had opportunity to have gone back in. But the implication is they were not mindful of that country. And the country here is the Ur of the Chaldees where Abraham was when God called him out. 
God called him out of that country. That was the land of his nativity. But once being called out and gotten down to the land of Canaan and saw these great promises of God, they were not mindful anymore about that country. That's a blessing, you see. But contrary to this, if you go to Exodus chapter 16, you'll find where Israel had been delivered out of the land of Egypt. Across the Red Sea. It hadn't been very long when all this happened. They'd seen the ten plagues, the great power of God and his delivering hand. But just as soon as some hard times began to come upon them, some trials and tribulations, you know what they said? They said, why did you bring us out here in this land to kill us out here? We remember back in the land of Egypt, we remember the melons and the onions and the leeks and the garlic and all those kinds. They were mindful of that country and they would have turned and went back had not God intervened, they would have elected a new leader when Moses went up on top of that mountain and took them back to the land of Egypt. Oh, that's, that's terrible. And I say to you tonight and myself, I don't want to be mindful of that country I came out of, you know, in a, when I was in a state where I had no interest in God. I don't want to go back to that country anymore. Do you? It says they were looking for a country. And they were looking for a country where God had prepared for them a city whereby he's not ashamed to be called their God. I believe this is Jacob's mindset right here. He left that land, go down to the land of Egypt with all that he had. That tells me he was all in. <laughs> you ever heard anybody talk like that? Are you all in? <laughs> you know, uh, getting ready to do something. You want to know those who are going to walk with you, are they all in? Are they committed? I wish everybody I've been blessed to baptize over the years had been all in, but they hadn't been. That's <laughs> just all there is to it. Uh, they had not been committed. Some have, some have not. Some stayed for a while, then they fell by the wayside. They were not all in. They were not all in. They were not committed. Jacob is all in this thing. He didn't just uh, get part of his stuff and leave part behind thinking, well, I've got enough to get me down there for a while, then I'll come back. No, he took all that he had everything that he had and took his journey and he came to a place called Beersheba and offered sacrifices to the God of his father Isaac. That might seem like an interesting statement just to say unto the God of his father Isaac, what about his grandfather Abraham? But you see, Isaac was the promised child. Isaac was the one whom the promised seed would come forth both in two ways. First of all, for the multiplication of the Jewish people to be like the dust of the earth from a natural offspring, but also it was through Isaac that the Lord Jesus Christ would come forth in this world and all the nations of this earth would be blessed. So he says he came and made these offering sacrifices there in a place called Beersheba unto the God of his father Isaac. Now Beersheba was a place that was very uh, favorable in the mind in memory of Jacob. It's first mentioned back in Genesis chapter, uh, about 18, I believe it is, when God appeared, first of all, unto Hagar. Remember when Hagar the, uh, was the bondwoman, and she had Ishmael, and Sarah cast her out, and she was out in the wilderness. It looked like she and the child was going to perish, but God in his mercy appeared and showed her some water, you know, right by there that wasn't there in the very beginning. That was in a place called Beersheba. In Genesis 21, you find where Abraham, had an experience at Beersheba when he had a, actually a controversy with the king of that land concerning a well of water. And they finally settled it with an oath, a place called Beersheba. That's what the word means, the place of the oath or the uh, well of the oath. Later on, we find where Isaac, who dug wells. Remember, he was a well digger. 
And he went digging wells, and the servants of the Philistines would come, and they had stopped them up, and there was conflict. He finally came to a place called Rehoboth. It means, for God hath made room. And the well was dug, and water was there, and they had a space, they had room. That was in Beersheba. Last Sunday, as we spoke from Genesis chapter 22, in the end, we find after Abraham had that experience on top of Mount Moriah, you know where he dwelt after that? When God supplied that ram in the place of his son, he dwelt in a place called Beersheba. Beersheba is the, uh, the very southernmost point of the land of Canaan. They started off the northern, northernmost point, got down to the southernmost point, about to leave Canaan's land. But before they did, they camped out at Beersheba, about a seven-day journey. It was a place that had many wonderful and profitable experiences in times past. Not only Jacob, but also Isaac and also Abraham. And what they do, they offer sacrifices here. In other words, before they continue their journey, they pause to thank God with these offerings and sacrifices. They pause to look to God to be their help, to be their guide, to be their protector and their provider as they continue forth. That's very important. That's what I need to do. That's what each one of you need to do. It's what we need to do as a church from time to time. There needs to be a pause. We need to ask God for guidance and for leadership and protection along the way. And that's what Jacob did here, a very wise move on his behalf. A very wise move. So after this, what happens? God spake unto Israel in the visions of the night and said, Jacob, Jacob. And he said, here am I. Here's that Jacob, Jacob. That's his earthly name. That's the name given to him by Isaac and Rebekah. I think the Lord's just reminding Jacob here, and you'll see this throughout the Old Testament, where especially like in the book of Isaiah, when he has reference to this man, sometimes he speaks to him as Israel, sometimes speaks to him as Jacob. I think we all need to be reminded of where we've come from. <laughs> we need to be reminded of our condition by nature, apart from God's grace, apart from the mercy of God. And so his name meant supplanter, it meant trickster. That was his human name. And he lived up that reputation quite well till the Lord apprehended him in a desert land and in a waste howling wilderness. And we find in two places in the book of Genesis where God changed his name from Jacob to Israel. And the word Israel means prince with God, that has power with God and with men. From the time that God changed his name to Israel, it meant from that time forward, he would go under the banner of God's power. Jacob, Jacob. Reminds me when the Lord said, Saul, Saul. The Lord said, Martha, Martha. <laughs> when your name's mentioned twice, uh, it's for emphasis sake. I, I know that growing up, uh, my dad ever called my name twice. I better stop in my tracks right then. You know, and give full attention to what was, uh, what was being said because he meant business if he called my name twice. Jacob, Jacob. And he said, here am I. Now notice Jacob's response. That's the kind of response I like to see in God's people. That's the kind of response I think I'd, I'd like to have. Reminds me of the response over here in Isaiah chapter 6. We said in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and lifted up, and his train did fill the temple. I saw the seraphims, etc., etc. After that glorious vision that Isaiah had, he said, I'm a man of unclean lips. That's how he saw himself, a man of unclean lips. He saw his depravity, he saw his unworthiness. And then the Lord appeared to him and said, Who shall I send? Who shall I send? Who shall go for us? You know what Isaiah said? He says, Here my Lord, send me. <laughs> Here my Lord, send me. I want to be your servant. Send me. I'll go. You just send me. And this is what Jacob says. He says, Here am I. And the Lord replied and said, I am God, the God of thy father. 
Fear not to go down into Egypt, for I have there, I will there make of thee a great nation. Now I can understand why Jacob would have been a little fearful to go down to Egypt. I'm sure he's quite aware that his grandfather Abraham one time went into e down to Egypt. Had it not been for intervening providence of God, his wife Sarah would have been defiled down that land. And God had to bring him out of there. I'm sure he was aware of the time when Isaac was headed down to Egypt and God stopped him in a place called Gerar and said, go not down into Egypt. Egypt could be a very dangerous place for God's people to be. Egypt represents the world. It's a dangerous place for God's people to get out here in the world. And I'm not just talking about, uh, you know, um, uh, just going downtown Nashville or something or whatever. I'm talking about what exists out here. The evil in this world, the wicked in this world, it's a dangerous place. You don't, you're in this world, but you don't need to be of the world, you see. So Jacob understood that. So the Lord said, fear not. That expression occurs over 300 times in the Bible. Fear not. But when God says fear not, he always follows it up with a reason why we shouldn't fear. And here's what he says unto Jacob. He says, fear not to go down to Egypt, for I will there make of thee a great nation. I'll make of thee a great nation. You know how many people right now is in Jacob's household? Seventy. And God's going to take seventy and make a great nation out of them. You will read, if you uh, do the math and everything, when Israel was brought out of the land of Egypt, they were around two million. God took seventy, and the time they come out of the land of Egypt, they're around two million. He made of them a great nation, did he not? See, he formed the nation of Israel. He created the nation of Israel. Now notice, he didn't say unto Jacob, and Jacob, ye shall, uh, you know, develop into a great nation. He said, I will make of thee a great nation. I'll go down with thee into Egypt, and I will also surely bring thee up again. And Joseph shall put his hand upon thine eyes. He said, I'll go with you. When you have the promise of God going with you, that ought to silence all fear. That ought to move fear right out of our hearts when we remember that God has promised to go with us. Notice what we find in the New Testament in Hebrews 13 and 5. First of all, he says, uh, uh, you know, let your life be without uh, covetousness, be content with such things as you have. He says, for the Lord has said, I'll never leave you nor forsake you, that we may boldly say the Lord is my helper. Notice, we're able to say the Lord is boldly, the Lord is my helper, based upon what the Lord has said. What did the Lord say? The Lord said, I'll never leave you nor forsake you. That goes all the way back to Jacob's time. Hundreds and hundreds of years later, we find Paul is still preaching that good news to the Lord's people, that the Lord will never leave you nor forsake you. If he won't leave us, he won't forsake us, that means he, he's right beside us, correct? He said, I'm not going to leave you. I'm not going to say, Jacob, I'll go down there with you. And Jacob, I'm going to bring you back up out of there. That's the promise of God. And he says, Joseph should put his hand upon thine eyes. Now, it was a common practice and I, it, it, throughout history, really, but especially in the days I'm talking about, when somebody died, the next of kin... The very next of kin would take his hands and close the eyes of a loved one. You see, Joseph is going to do that. He's not the oldest. But Reuben has already forsaken his birthright, and now Joseph is taking his place. It says, Joseph shall close thine eyes. That's two things about that. First of all, it's another reminder to Jacob, Joseph is alive. How can Joseph close Jacob's eyes if he's not alive? It also tells Jacob that when you pass away, Joseph still be living and Joseph is going to take care of your family. 
That's two things that the Lord is telling Joseph, uh, Jacob here by making that statement. Now, you may just read that and not, you know, read right over that, but that's at least two things here that God is telling Jacob. And Jacob rose up from Bathsheba, and the sons of Israel carried Jacob their father and their little ones and their wives and the wagons which Pharaoh had sent to carry him. Now, notice it doesn't say anything about the wives of Jacob. In all probability, uh, I know Rachel's died, and all probability, Leah died, and uh, the two handmaids that he had, where which all twelve his sons come from, on uh, all probability they're dead, and it's only Jacob now, his sons and their wives. It mentions their wives, but no wife from Jacob. In all probability and likelihood, they've passed away. Jacob's sons is going to take him down there. And they took their cattle and their goods, which they'd gotten in the land of Canaan, and came into Egypt, Jacob, and all the seeds with him. He, his sons, and his sons' sons with him, his daughters, his sons' daughters, and all his seed brought he with them into Egypt. Now, starting in verse 8, we have the names of all those children. We're going to go over that. I mean, we're going to pass that. Verse 8 through verse 27. When you get to verse 27, he gives you the sum total of how many it was. I've already mentioned this. It was 70. 70 souls went down to the land of Egypt. Let's look at verse 28. And he, that's Jacob, sent Judah before him unto Joseph to direct his face unto Goshen. And they came into the land of Goshen. Now Goshen was in the northwest, I think northwest part of Egypt, but it was the best land in the land of Egypt. It's the most fertile land, the most productive land, most fruitful land. And you're going to find where Israel is going to get that, that land. How did they get it? Pharaoh's already told Joseph when they come down here, he says they shall eat the fat of the land. They'll live in the very best land that we have in the land of Egypt. It's about 900 square miles in this land. It's just given to them. That's amazing when you think about it. As far as I'm concerned, they're coming from another country down there and they're going to get a land far superior to all the Egyptians who already live there. The heart of the king is in the hand of the Lord once again. In verse 29, And Joseph made ready his chariot and went up to meet Israel his father to Goshen and presented himself unto him. And he fell on his neck and wept on his neck a good while. Now, let's just let's think about this scene here just for a second. It's been 22 years since Jacob saw Joseph. For 22 years, Jacob thought Joseph was dead. Now, Joseph knows Jacob, his father, is alive. He found that out through the interview with his brothers, you know, in those times that he showed him uh, that he had them before him when he knew them, but they didn't know him. And he drew that information out of them through the divine wisdom God gave Joseph. He drew all that information out of his brothers. He knows his father's alive. Can you imagine what's in the heart of Joseph? Can you imagine what's in the heart of Jacob? Jacob's going down to Egypt to see Joseph. Joseph meets him up there in Goshen to see him. What a reunion this is. Okay, it's hard to imagine the feeling, the emotion that's involved in these two men who hadn't seen each other in 22 years. I've seen this, you know, on TV a number of times when some program will reunite somebody who hadn't seen each other for a long time. It's a very emotional thing. But let's think about it here in Joseph and Jacob just for a moment. 
Jacob sees Joseph, his son, he gave the coat of many colors to, who thought he was dead for 22 years. And now here comes Joseph, and, and he's riding in a chariot. And I'm sure he's got the apparel that he would wear as a governor over the land of Egypt. He sees his son. I, I don't know how Jacob made it without just fainting again. I don't know how he made it without passing out. I don't know how he made it, made it without his heart stopped beating him on an occasion like that. Can you, you have to imagine that, right? Oh, what a, what a reunion that was. This reminds me of the 15th chapter of the Gospel of Luke when the prodigal son came home and the father saw him from afar off. I don't know how long they'd been separated and, and the, prodigal, uh, the father did not know what had become of the prodigal son, but he kept hoping he was alive and sure enough he was. And one day he looks and here comes his son who'd been gone for a while. What did he do? He ran to him. And he embraced him and he kissed him and called for the fatted calf and the gold ring and the shoes and the robe and all of these things. Now the word weep is not in there, but don't tell me that father wasn't weeping. (laughs) See, tears flow, my friends, for various reasons. Sometimes people cry for physical pain. Sometimes they cry because of heart pain, right? Sometimes they cry because of sorrow and distress and things of that nature, but sometimes they cry for joy. That prodigal son, when he came home, the father saw it. Don't tell me he wasn't weeping when he got to him. Psalms 30 and verse 5 says that weeping may endure for the night, but joy cometh in the morning. (laughs) Notice the expression here. And he fell upon upon Jacob. He fell on his neck and wept on his neck a good while. In other words, he cried a long time. (laughs) This wasn't just a quick embrace. And and Joseph said, "Well, well, dad, sure it is to see you again. And Jacob didn't say, well, son, I, I thought you were dead for 22 years. I'm glad to see you. I'm glad you're alive. No, I, it wasn't anything like that. He wept a long time. In the 20th chapter of Acts, you read toward the end of the chapter, you'll find where Paul had been there with the, with, at the church at Ephesus. And he had preached to them for a good while. But the time came that Paul must leave and here's a tender scene, seen there where Paul and the, and the elders of Ephesus and them are there by the seashore. And the Bible says, they fell upon his neck and they wept sore because they loved him. And sorry, most of all, for the words that Paul had told them that he would see their face no more. It's one of the most tender scenes, I think, in all the Word of God. That to have that kind of love for each other. Upon the news that they would not see his face anymore in this world, in this life. I've heard preachers say so many times, the older preachers used to say, if I don't see you anymore in this life, I'll see you on the other side, of, I'll see you on the other side of Sunny Banks of Deliverance, you know. <laughs> and that is true, my friends. I need to use that more. <laughs> if I don't see you anymore, I'll see you on the other side of the Sunny Banks of Deliverance because that's just an expression saying, there's a better place than this. What a scene we have here. And Israel said unto Joseph, now let me die since I've seen thy face because thou art yet alive. I mean, Jacob seemed like he's got death on his mind. <laughs> well, what could be any greater than what he's just experienced? What, else, what could he possibly experience any more than this? To see the son, his son, to see the face of his son he thought was dead for 22 years. And that God and his, and his blessings and God and his providence has blessed the two to come together again. He said, just let me die. <laughs> Uh, uh, there can't be anything better than this. I'll just go out on a high note. Just let me die. But you see, Jacob's not going to die for 17 years. 17 years. You know how old Joseph was when Jacob thought he was dead? He was 17. 
for 17 years that Joseph lived. He was in the father's house. Then 22 years in between, he's not there anymore. But the last 17 years of Jacob's life, he gets Joseph back again. 17 here and 17 here. But you see, sometimes people get the idea that they're going to die. If you go to Genesis 27, you'll find where uh, what led up to Isaac telling Esau to go get him some venison. And here's where, you know, Rebecca intervenes and she gets Jacob to go out and, uh, and get the goat meat and this, that, and the other. And they deceive their father, Jacob, uh, Isaac. But I just want this right here. Here's what he says to Esau. He says, I'm old. Now, at least uh, <laughs> uh, Isaac confessed he was old. Isaac says, I'm old. <laughs> and he says, I know not when I shall die. Isaac thought he's probably going to die within a year. He wanted one glass of good meal. You know how much long Isaac's going to live? Nearly 30 years. Thinking this preacher, a friend of mine, well, he's done passed on to be with the Lord many years ago, but I, I heard him, I could tell you two or three ministers, that uh, every time you talk to them, one foot was in the grave and the other was on a banana peel. I mean, they were totally convinced they didn't have long to live. I had an uncle that uh, when you ask him how he was doing, he, you'd think yeah, he was uh, barely, barely had enough breath to last another day. And he went to the hospital one time and got a physical. They said, you got a, they gave him a, a bill of clean health. Made him mad. Upset him when they said he was in good health. <laughs> He'd been telling people he was dying for years, and now the doctors have contradicted it. But I've heard this one in particular I know. I mean, he just barely could get into the pulpit. Uh, he took each step so slow. He lived for years after that, my friends. And that's the way it was with Isaac. Jacob's got his eyes seemingly on death. <laughs> And then you're going to find some information here where Joseph and his brother, he took five brothers and came before Pharaoh. Pharaoh's already given the green light. They can live in Goshen. But at the same time, there's protocol here. And they come before Pharaoh. Maybe Pharaoh's changed his mind. They want confirmation of it. But let's listen to this in chapter 47 of Genesis. And Pharaoh said to his brother, what is your occupation? They said to Pharaoh, thy servants are shepherds, both we and also our fathers. They said, Moreover unto Pharaoh, for to sojourn in this land are we come, for thy servants have no pasture for the flocks. For the famine is sore in the land of Canaan. Now therefore we pray thee, let us, thy servants dwell in the land of Goshen. And Pharaoh spake to Joseph, saying, Thy father and thy brethren are come unto thee. The land of Egypt is before thee. His mind hadn't changed. In the best of the land, make thy father and brethren to dwell in the land of Goshen. Let them dwell. If thou knowest any men of activity among them, then make them rulers over my cattle. He said, they're this good at it, and this is what they do. Set some of them apart and let them take care of my cattle. <laughs> Man, can you, Jacob's brothers and his family, how far they have come, how far they've come under the, the blessings of God's hand and his mercy and his grace in their lives. They're going to dwell in the very best land that exists in the land of Egypt, the land of Goshen. They've been promoted to take care of the cattle of Pharaoh. You're talking about showing favor to, to somebody. And then Joseph brought in Jacob, his father, and set him before Pharaoh, and Jacob blessed Pharaoh. Now, let's take a look here right quick. These three men, you got Joseph, you got Jacob, and you got Pharaoh. Pharaoh is king over Egypt, most powerful nation on the earth at this present time. There's Joseph, the governor of Egypt. Position number two. And here is Jacob, the father and Joseph. Pharaoh only knows, the only thing he knows about Jacob, that he's the father of Joseph. That's all he knows about him. He doesn't know how important this man is. 
The most important man here, in a sense, is Jacob, because that's whom God has made all these promises to, the covenant promises to. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, Pharaoh knows nothing about these, this man, knows nothing about his background, knows nothing about his experiences, knows nothing of the fact that God one time found him in a wasteland, a desert, a desert land, waste howling wilderness. And in that land, the Lord apprehended him and changed him all around and gave him a new direction in life. Pharaoh knows nothing about that. Just think about that for a moment. And Jacob blesses Pharaoh. And Pharaoh said unto Jacob, how old are you? <laughs> and Jacob said unto Pharaoh, the days of the years of my pilgrimage are 130 years, few and evil. I mean, the days of the years of my life been. That's kind of interesting. Jacob is 130. You might say, and he thinks he's just been here a short time. 130 years. See, here's what it boils down to. I don't care what your age is. You may be 25. You may be 60. You may be 85. Regardless of your age, if you look back somewhere in your lifetime to a certain event in your life years ago, it just seems like it was a skip, hop, and a jump to where you're at today. Right? The question is asked in James 4.14, what is your life? James answers it. He says, it's like a vapor. It's here now and vanisheth away. You ever put a, a pot of water on the oven and boil it and see a little steam come out? He says, that's just how long your life is. You'll see that steam for a little bit. The next thing you turn your head and look back, it's gone. It's gone. If you turn to Job chapter 7, 8, and 9, you'll find where Job uses several comparisons to the brevity of life. He said, our life is like a shadow. You see a shadow, a tree makes a shadow out here. You see the shadow, you turn your head, do a few, a few odds, and then turn back, where's the shadow gone? It's gone, right? He compares it to the swiftness of a ship. You ever been out on the, uh, on the beach, and you see a, a boat way out there, and you see it, and then you, your mind gets on something else, you turn around and look, and you say, where'd that ship go? He compares that to your life as an eagle hasted to a prey. He says, our, our days are like the, uh, a weaver's shuttle. It's like a weaver's shuttle. It's like the wind. It's like the clouds. All these are metaphors. All these are words here, expressions to teach you how brief life is. And you come to Job 14, 1. And Job said, man that's born of woman is what? He's few days and full of trouble. It doesn't matter how long he's lived on this earth. At that, any particular time in his life, he can just say, my days have been, been short here. Jacob says, I live, I'm, I'm 130 years old. And he says, my days have been short, they've been few, and they have been evil. That's what he's thinking about. And he had had a, a tough past, hadn't he not? When you go back and read Jacob's experience and stand from the time he's born till the time he loses, loses Joseph in Genesis 37, he'd had a lot of difficult experiences along long life's pathway. But I'm telling you, the last 17 years of Jacob's life will be years of peace and good health and happiness. He just doesn't know it yet. He just doesn't know it yet. That's, going, that's what it's going to be. I believe the last 17 years of Jacob's life were the best years of his 147 he spent here on this earth. I believe every stage of life ought to be enjoyed for what it is. I don't care if you're 5 or you're 15 or you're 25 or you're 85. There's things you can enjoy later on in life you couldn't enjoy in your earlier days and vice versa. There's new surprises every, every year. You know, you have a birthday and you go to a little bit, get a little older. There's going to be things that you can experience and things you can enjoy that maybe you could not have done it 20 or 30 years ago.
Every stage of life ought to be enjoyed. Jacob says, the days of my pilgrimage. And notice what he said, my pilgrimage. He's still thinking about being a, what? A stranger and a pilgrim here in this earth, right? A lot of, a lot of times people use labels, use words to describe uh, their life in different ways. And Jacob here chooses the word pilgrimage, which he's just simply saying, this world is not my home. And Jacob blessed Pharaoh and went out. He blessed him when he, in the beginning. He blessed him in the end. Notice verses 11 and 12. And Joseph placed his father and his brethren and gave them possession in the land of Egypt in the best of the land. How many times has it been repeated here that this is the best part of Egypt? <laughs> over and over and over again, we're told that. And Joseph placed his father and his brethren and gave them possession in the land of Egypt in the best of the land, in the land of Ramesses, as Pharaoh had commanded and Joseph nourished his father and his brethren and all of his father's household with bread according to their families. Joseph is nourishing them. He's taking care of them. Notice verse 13. And there was no bread in all the land. Did I just read that right? <laughs> yes, I did. Verse 12. And Joseph nourished his father and brethren and all his father's household with bread. The very next verse says, and there was no bread in all the land. That means there was no bread outside the bread that Joseph had stored up in the different cities in the seven years of plenty. There's no more bread left. What's Joseph doing? He's nursing his family with bread. They're not even paying for it. Now, if you start reading after this point here, you're going to find what a wise administrator Joseph was. It's going to finally reach a point where the Egyptians got poorer and poorer and poorer as the famine continued on. Till finally they had nothing and finally sold themselves as servants and slaves to Pharaoh. Pharaoh owned everything. He owned the money, he owned the lands, he owned the possessions, he owned the people. And while all this time this is going on, what's happening in the land of Goshen? The Bible says they were growing and multiplying exceedingly. <laughs> They've been adequately taken care of. They're not experiencing the same things that the Egyptians are. God in his providence is taking care of this people because he's going to form and make a great nation out of them. What a, what a miraculous series of events this is. Let's come on down. I'll skip all the reading of this. I want to conclude tonight down in verse 28 through 31. And Jacob lived in the land of Egypt 17 years. So the whole age of Jacob was 147 years. See, his, his father lived to be 180, Isaac. His grandfather, Abraham, lived to be 175. So I guess at age 130, he seemed like his days were few <laughs> by comparison's sake. But he will live and die at age 147. And the time drew nigh that Israel must die. And he called his son Joseph and said unto him, If now I have found grace in thy sight, put, I pray thee, thy hand under my thigh, and deal kindly and truly with me. Bury me not, I pray thee, in Egypt. You know what Jacob's doing here? He's making funeral arrangements. He's making funeral plans. Sometimes somebody passes away and the news is out. Somebody says, well, have, have any arrangements been made? 
I believe the wise will have already made their arrangements. It's important to have a last will and testament, right? But it's also important to have a last witness and testimony. The last public testimony you're ever going to give in this world is when you die. I believe a witness and a testimony is just as important as the will and the testament. Jacob is making plans for his funeral. And what's he say? Don't you bury me in Egypt. Why? They had some of the best burial practices it was from the standpoint of taking care of the body. One thing or another, don't you bury me in Egypt. Egypt was known for its idolatry. They worshiped anything and everything you could possibly imagine down the land of Egypt. And Jacob says, don't you bury me in this land. You take me out of here. Listen to the rest of what he says here. He said, but I will lie with my fathers, and thou shalt carry me out of Egypt, and bury me in their burying place. And he said, Joseph, I will do as thou hast said. And he said, swear unto me. And he swore unto him. And Israel bowed himself upon the bedstead. You see, he wanted to be buried back where Abraham and Sarah, Isaac and Rebekah, and Leah were all buried. He wanted to be buried among his people. He wanted to be buried in the land of Canaan where his descendants one day would come and fully occupy. When they would come out of the land of Egypt, over 200 some years later, where would they go? To the land of Canaan where he wanted to be taken out and taken into and be buried there where his father and his mother and his grandfather and his grandmother were buried. The family burial plot, in other words. These were all uh, people who confessed they were pilgrims and strangers. He wanted identity with them. He didn't want to have a testimony that he died and was buried in the land of idolatry. When you go to the cemetery and you see somebody laying a loved one to rest, I'm telling you, they're showing uh, in their actions, they believe in the death, burial, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. And they believe that body that God gave, we should take care of it to the very best of our ability while we're living. And also, when our loved ones pass this scene of life, we still need to take care. That body was uh, created by God, and that body was bought by the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we're saying we place that body in the grave. We believe the day is coming when the voice of God shall speak, and that body will come out of that grave. That body be resurrected. That body will come out of there by the power of God, be reunited with the soul and the spirit, and taken home to glory. We're making a statement. Our witness and our testimony goes all the way even to the grave. Now, our next message we'll pick up in chapter 48 called Jacob's not dead yet. <laughs> He's dying. Uh, Hebrews eleven twenty one 21 says, By faith when Jacob was dying, he blessed both the sons of, of Joseph, which is in chapter 48. When he was dying, by faith when he was dying, D-Y-I-N-G, he's not dead yet. Not dead yet. When he was dying, blessed both the sons of Jacob and worshipped of Joseph and worship leaning upon his staff. You see a little bit of that in the closing verse here of chapter 47, but we will see that in more detail in chapter 48.